from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. The tropical waters of Seychelles are rich and life as new research is confirming it's a hot spot for whales and dolphins but there is one gargantuan visitor that looms a little larger in significance and mystery the team of scientists have confirmed that blue whales frequent seychelles especially between december and april dr jeremy kiska a biology professor at florida international university and a research associate at the island biodiversity and conservation center at the University of Seychelles joins us in the first part of the show to talk about this research and the importance whales play in our ecosystems. Then in the second part of the show, on the heels of World Soil Day, which was December 5th, we will be speaking with Daniel Rath, a scientist from the Natural Resources Defense Council, about the effects which neonic pesticides are having on soil and in turn the impact they're having on the environment, the surrounding ecosystems and us. All that and some news about warming temperatures and the continuing increase in the use of large-scale renewable energy projects around the globe. Joining us for the first part of the show is Dr. Jeremy Kiska. He's a biology professor at Florida International University and a research associate at the Island Biodiversity and Conservation Center at the University of Seychelles. He's joining us to talk about uh, whales in general, blue whales in particular. Uh, Dr. Kizga, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Of course, happy to join you. Um, first, are, um, are you joining us from Seychelles or, or FIU? No, I'm, uh, I'm back to, uh, to Miami. I was in Seychelles for about a month, uh, but I came back a couple weeks ago, so uh, no. End of the semester, and uh, oh, <laughs> my yeah. professor, my you, obligations. You have, I was a professor. You have finals. Yeah, I had to come <laughs> yeah, it just oh, finished. It was oh, intense. I just had PTSD. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, let's start with kind of the the overarching. What I find is kind of the overarching question with respect to whales: Why are whales important to ecosystems in general? What role do they play? in a typical ecosystem? Well, whales um, and, and cetaceans in general can play a variety of different roles. They're not playing just one role, mm -hmm. but you know, large whales, for example, they consume a lot of biomass. So they actually remove um, organisms from, from, ecosystems, from ecosystems, which can affect um, uh, other organisms, but they can also fuel ecosystems whenever they defecate, whenever they urinate, uh, because whatever they excrete, whatever they produce that goes back in the environment can actually uh, fertilize uh, um, uh, marine ecosystems. And that's particularly important in regions, for example, in the, in the tropics, where there's not a whole lot of uh, nutrients that are available. So the you know, primary production, so phytoplankton uh, growth is limited because they just don't have uh, the fuel. So whales can actually fuel uh, the production of um, of uh, phytoplankton um, uh, production. So that's, they can be really important, uh, but it's really context dependent. There's going to be places where they're more important than others. So uh, kind of the, the obverse then would be, let's picture a world without whales what goes what goes on within the ecosystem what changes in the ecosystem 
Well, it's 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 difficult to know. Uh, I mean, with um, the cessation of commercial whaling, uh, we've been able to sort of like characterize what you know uh, could happen whenever whales uh, are not around. But um, obviously, uh, whales um, are very important uh, consumers, as I just said. Mm -hmm. um, but they're also important whenever they die. Uh, you know, their carcass sink uh, at the bottom and they fuel like the, the bottom of the ocean. And they're actually organisms that you can only find on what we call whale falls. So to going back to your question, um, it's, you know, we, we still uh, debate a lot on, you know, what would happen if uh, whales would completely disappear. Although we have experienced times when they were literally like almost gone. Hmm. Um, the problem is that you need a reference uh, uh, situation to fully understand, fully unravel what what their roles uh, are, and this is a real this is really a new field of research. You know, we haven't thought about uh, understanding what would happen when whales and other and many other marine predators that are actually disappearing now, such as sharks. Right. You know, we're still like grasping, really. Um, uh, you know. Uh, uh, investigating how investigating how these animals can affect ecosystem dynamics but what i can uh, uh you know uh what i can say from what we know is that whenever these whales uh disappear they're not fueling the ecosystem uh, as they should mm -hmm. so you know primary production like the basis of food web those tiny little uh uh um this the you know the um uh um, the zooplankton, uh, the phytoplankton, sorry, mm -hmm. uh, cannot really grow as much as, you know, if they're whales. So, uh, yes, we could potentially lose primary production. We could also lose species. They're living on whale falls. We know that um, uh, some species, as I said, you know, exclusively live on whale falls. So if you remove those whale falls, I mean, they completely disappear. Mm. Um, but again, you know, it's it's hard to understand, uh, but there might be like serious consequences. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention as well is whenever, um, you know, uh, these large wells fuel uh, ecosystem, um, you know, through nutrients that they excrete, they, they uh, promote phytoplankton growth, but that also helps to sequestrate uh, uh, carbon dioxide that is in the atmosphere. Right. So phytoplankton is actually the main thing, you know, for uh, carbon um, uh, dioxide, dioxide. So having more wells can actually promote the sequestration of, of carbon dioxide. Nice. Excellent. So we do recognize that there is obviously an importance to having whales to these ecosystems and um, exciting news reported out of the Seychelles. Let's turn our attention to the blue whale now specifically. Um, there has been some research done and the last couple times you have been there, you have noted that the blue whales have come back to there. Let's start with the, uh, why that species may have been in peril to begin with. You had talked about whalers and uh, we know that they uh, had a great impact on the whales back in the day. Can you kind of take us through their history a little bit? Yeah, so, you know, under uh, voyage to Antarctica, um, whalers uh, used to actually stop by the Seychelles, uh, especially Soviet whalers, um, back in the 60s, and they have harvested thousands huh. of whales over a thousand blue whales just north of the Seychelles. So you can imagine, 
you know, uh, what impact, I mean, it's actually difficult to imagine what impact uh, whaling may have caused on, you know, on these, on these animals. What we really know is that they were able to catch dozens of whales uh, within the single month. I mean, there's been almost like, you know, in just in 1964, like 500 blue whales were caught. I mean, it's a huge number. Mm. So, you know, understanding um, the impact uh, on blue whale populations in that area of the Indian Ocean is difficult because before whaling, we didn't know how many there were, right? So, you know, um, uh, right now we're just seeing this, this come back um, but, you know, again, we didn't have a whole lot of baseline information before. The only thing that you can, you know, that I can tell you now is that, um, you know, as, as soon as we um, put the information out on the fact, okay, they're blue whales of the Seychelles, the population, and that was to me very significant, could not believe what we're saying. Uh, we can't believe that there are blue whales like in our waters, like just in our backyards. I'm like, well, yeah, these are, you know, this is your, um, this is the wildlife you have in your backyard. So you have to be, to be very careful of what you do uh, to the to the marine environment if you want to keep those uh, animals. One thing that is also that I wanted to mention as well is, you know, understanding the impact that these animals have on on ecosystems is important, but the impact that they have on people is is also significant. You know, it, they're really flagship species um, that you can pretty much use, uh, you know, to convey a, a message on the importance of protecting um, um, uh, oceans and marine species. And whales also generate uh, um, funds, you know, they generate business. Uh, if, you know, people want to go see these animals, hopefully it happens in a, you know, respectful and sustainable way. But you can promote tourism activities around these whales, uh, and you know that's that's really something that we want to help with because the Seychelles is really eager to you know uh, uh, make those animals like visible to the population and and to tourists. So they have impacts uh, all across the board um, uh, to people and on ecosystems as well. What were these whales being harvested for? What was the you know its its typical use? Well, um, they were primarily harvested for their oil, mm -hmm. um, you know, as lubricant. I mean, oil, you know, and their blubber used to be uh, used for many for many purposes, um, for in, you know, and, and lubricant for industries, etc. Uh, and not much more. I mean, mm -hmm. all the meat, all the organs, the bones, they were all discarded. So you know, it was really like a portion of these animals that were used. Well, I think it's a, a very positive note to say that it was lawmakers, it was a law that went into place because we talk a lot about that at the end of our programs of what can we do, and a lot of it is speak to your lawmakers. And this law went through and it did make a huge difference uh, in now this ecosystem and for the blue whales. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, and it's... it's um, you know, to me, I'm very excited that now, like, uh, the population of Seychelles is actually taking ownership and they're very willing to make um, efforts to actually protect these animals. Uh, um, and, um, uh, yeah, it's it's a really exciting time uh, today. And it's also nice. I, I feel also, that, you know, as a conservation biologist, there are so many bad news, you know, species disappearing and so forth, like ecosystem collapsing. So those good news 
um, especially when it comes to those large charismatic animals, those good news, like it, it feels really good. Um, so, uh, I, and I hope to bring like more uh, good news in the future uh, through our research in Seychelles. We're speaking with Dr. Jeremy Kizga. He's a biology professor at Florida International University and a research associate at the Island Biodiversity and Conservation Center at the University of Seychelles. We're here talking about whales, but in particular blue whales at the moment. And just to kind of round things out with respect to blue whales, um, how close did they come to extinction, you know, blinking out, and how have their numbers recovered? So globally, the number of blue whales have increased, and there are some places where you know they made uh, a spectacular uh, uh, comeback, especially in the Pacific, in uh, the Northeast Pacific. Um, we don't know, and you know, if if that's the case everywhere, there's like some places, uh, like in the Southern Ocean, where they're recovering but very slowly. Um, so you know, it's just that we know so little about the largest animal on Earth. Uh, and there's a lot more to discover. And the proof is, you know, this work that we just completed uh, in Seychelles is, you know, really shows that how little we know about these animals and how much we need to uh, get out there and, and study these absolutely stunning animals. And how did you um, track uh, the animals as they were coming in? I, I think it's always interesting to hear uh, how mostly I believe it's by sound that you track them. So what were some of these oh, yeah. uh, techniques and ways in which that you understood that they were around and they were kind of speaking to each other? Well, you know, what's really interesting about this, the work that we did and that we're still continuing in Seychelles is that most of our knowledge is based on us spying on them <laughs> through um, acoustic recorders. So we have microphones we, that we call hydrophones that we um, put on the ocean floor and we leave them for a year. Uh, and, you know, then we recover them and we just extract all the files from, you know, small SD cards. And, you know, we just um, listen. And um, that's exactly how we found out that blue whales were primarily uh, calling each other, you know, from December to April, but they're pretty much present all year round. What's really fun, uh, not so fun for us, is that we organized two expeditions in November because we really thought, and we had records during the, you know, in, the, in November, which is a, also a, a good month because the wind is down uh, in Seychelles. So we're like, well, this is perfect time to go because there are sightings and the weather is great. But we realized, oh my God, we need to come back uh, at another time of the year to to uh, to actually start working on the animals, not just like record them, because that's pretty much uh, almost everything we know about them. But you know, we want to collect samples, we want to uh, uh, collect photographs of the on these animals, and maybe tag them to actually understand where they go, where did they come from, and where do they go. Uh, but yes, sound was the primary source of information that we that we still have today. And what do you know about them as far as uh, how they are as a community, how they react to each other, and what their mating is like? What are some of uh, the things that you do know about these whales? Well, I wish I could answer all these questions. Interestingly, we don't really know what they're doing mm. in Seychelles in this tropical paradise. Mm. What, you know, are they feeding? Are they mating? Are, do, are, are they calving? Um, are they doing both? We have actually no idea. The only thing mm. that we know 
is that the calls, you know, blue whales have different dialects. Let's put it that way. Uh, and in the Indian Ocean, we know like five call types of blue whales. And the blue whales of Seychelles actually are what we call, you know, produce these calls that we call the Sri Lankan calls. So, hmm. you know, they're, um, so it means that they're pretty similar to uh, animals that we found, we find off of, of, of Sri Lanka. So in the northern, uh, further north in the uh, uh, Indian Ocean, that's pretty much all we know uh, at the moment. You know, we need to further examine the the calls because we know that they're mating calls or feeding calls. So we need to get uh, a little deeper into that. But again, you know, it's a mystery. We don't know what they're doing uh, uh, in Seychelles. We don't know what they're doing in many places around the globe. And we just need to spend more time uh, out there uh, to study these animals. Well, That's all I can tell you. <laughs> okay, well, how about this one? How, what about their migratory patterns? I mean, what kind of uh, distances do they cover in a typical year? The blue whales, let's say. I know there's different whales have different migratory patterns, but blue whales. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, usually what they do is that they, you know, they go in on their feeding grounds, um, you know, uh, in cold waters where it's really productive such as the south you know the southern ocean and then they migrate to like warmer waters uh, uh during the winter so summer uh wherever there's a lot of food and winter wherever uh, it's you know it's warmer so you know they can get uh they can uh um you know they can mate and also uh, uh females can um um you know have their calves and nurse their calves etc in the seychelles we are dealing with uh, a population for which we have no idea what they're doing, where they come from. So, you know, I wish I would tell you, well, you know, they migrate between Sri Lanka and Seychelles, but we have no idea. And then the only uh, way for us to do it is actually deploy some satellite tags on them. And we tried a couple of years ago, but we had so few whales that we didn't get a lot of opportunities uh, to deploy those tags. But this is one thing that we want to do starting next year. So, you know, we have to get close to these animals, uh, put those tags uh, on their back and try to see, you know, where they're moving. But most of the time they do those north-south migrations. Mm. Um, so we might expect these animals in Seychelles move between Seychelles, Sri Lanka, maybe go as far as like south in Madagascar. We have actually no idea, hmm. um, but we're very eager to, to find out. Yeah, a lot of mysteries, you know, you might, oh my God, these guys don't know uh, what these animals are doing well you know that that's also what's really exciting about uh, working with such a such a phenomenal animal uh it's just that they're hard to study you know you have to it's just they're so elusive uh you have to spend a lot of time out there use technology to help uh to help you know you understand what they're doing um but that's that's really exciting well that's why we have graduate and doctoral students dr kiska you know, to, to exactly. have, do all that, do the, the, the hard yards, the hard labor of uh, tagging, yeah, tagging I mean, a blue I whale. Love... Your job today, tag, tag this blue whale. So I know, I know. And we have a lot of students very excited about, you know, the possibility of doing blue whale work. Trust me, there's a lot of uh, students knocking on the door like, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. Uh, um, yeah. Want... So what I've, I've been doing Seychelles is actually involving the local students. Um, uh, and, and yeah. you know, we have a few, a few they're very excited about, you know, studying their uh, blue whales. Yeah. Uh, we got just a, just a few more minutes. I wanted to circle back to the harvesting of these animals. Are there still countries that are hunting and harvesting blue whales? 
No. No. no okay. We, we, no, no, no. Blue whales are not harvested anymore by no, um, you know, that we know. I mean, they're globally protected. Sure. Um, but no, the problem with blue whales is that they face other challenges. I mean, whaling is not so much of a problem for them. Today is noise in the environment, shipping traffic and collisions, major problem. You know, the more ah. there's noise, the, the lesser they're able actually to communicate and find each other. So, you know, in, 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 in whenever the shipping uh, traffic is really intense, they're not, I mean, they can be fast, but sometimes ships have even faster. Mm. Uh, and we have a lot of blue whales actually dying uh, from collisions. So shipping traffic noise is, I would say, you know, these two issues are the most significant to blue whales. Um, and there are places where uh, blue whales co-occur uh, with heavy uh, uh, shipping traffic up the coast of California, for example. And that's, that's really concerning. And that's definitely something that we have to be careful about. In the Indian Ocean, we also have intense uh, shipping uh, routes. Uh, and you know what? Something that will be very important in the future is to look at the movements of these animals and and see where they potentially overlap and where we can actually provide you know advice and recommendations to government and and manage uh, management um, uh, bodies and policymakers. Like okay, you know, there's something that you really need to do. Otherwise, you're going to have a problem of, uh, with with uh, with these blue whales. So um, uh, um, yeah, that's some of the things that we can actually uh, do and provide advice for. So if we do want to track the progress for these blue whales and track what you're doing, how do we do that? Where should we go? Well, um, you know, we're yeah, it's, it's always the, you know, there's a lot of people um, uh, following us on social uh, uh, media, following my lab uh, on social media, and they're very excited about that. So that's probably, you know, that's probably what we're using the most to update people about our work. And also we, you know, uh, with my lab, we're trying to uh, also, uh, you know, raise awareness. We produced this uh, film um, on on Blue Whales that was in, you know, in IMAX theater, uh, theaters, um, you know, and produced by Ocean Oceanic Films. And that was really exciting. And we're, you know, meeting, you know, we're uh, showing uh, the film. We're gonna show it next year in Seychelles to, to show the population of Seychelles uh, that they have these wells and we have amazing images. Uh, but yeah, I would say like uh, social media, I have a, a lab website where people can actually uh, follow what uh, what we do. It's uh, um, Marine Conservation Ecology Laboratory uh, and uh, people can follow us um, and, and, and see what we're doing with these animals. Dr. Jeremy Kiska, biology professor at Florida International University and research associate at the Island Biodiversity and Conservation Center at the University of Seychelles. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. You're so welcome. Have a good day. Thanks, Jeremy. You too. Thank you. And we are now turning our attention to neonics. Got it. Did I say it correctly? Yes. I, I um, as many people probably mispronounce it, I would uh, assume, but it is neonics, and these are well, pesticides. Well, Daniel has another way of saying it. Well, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll wait and see. Hopefully not, because I was I was uh, corrected yeah. earlier today on how to say that. But we do want to turn our attention to soil, soil bi biodiversity, soil health. Obviously, it is very important uh, for not only the health of the creatures 
others that live in it, but also obviously for us as humans. And we are excited today to have Daniel Rathon, who is a scientist from the NRDC, who is going to be talking about, first of all, let's just talk about, well, welcome, first of all, Dan. <laughs> Absolutely happy to be here. And you did pronounce it right. It is Neonix. 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 And uh, first, uh, uh, pulling back from that, that introduction of the pesticides first, let's talk about what soil biodiversity is, what it means, and what healthy soil looks like. Yeah, sure. So, you know, soil biodiversity is this amazing living network that honestly is a little bit overlooked. If you think about all the good things that soil does, it purifies water, it helps grow our crops, um, it really all functions because you have this incredibly complex network with all these organisms interacting um, and they're able to carry out, they're able to do some amazing things, honestly. So soil biodiversity is really, you know, one of the basis of healthy soils. When we talk about healthy soils, we say that they're living systems, living networks that um, provide functions that are important to us. And soil biodiversity is really the living part of that. Excellent. And so uh, healthy soil means that all of these organisms, that food web underneath our feet here in the soil is working properly. And uh, we have, though, kind of introduced some things to help us grow crops uh, and for certain reasons uh, introduce these pesticides that uh, kind of wreak havoc on that food web that you just told us about. Can you share that? Yeah, sure. So what happens here is that, you know, because all of these organisms are there, you know, we'll have some that are pests that are like disease causing organisms and they aren't really, you know, always there in like really high populations. But if they are, we use pesticides and chemicals to try and control them. Um, one of the problems, though, is when you have sort of, you know, pesticides added to the soil, they never really just target one thing. They always... Uh, you know, hit, they always have impacts on like organisms that you didn't maybe expect them to have. And so I think neonics are a good example of that. They're what's known as a broad spectrum insecticide. That means that they get taken up by plants. That means that, you know, they're present in sort of all of the plant tissues. And what happens is that there's, uh, neonics are introduced to have an impact on, you know, one type of organism that might be a pest but they are, end up having negative impacts on things like pollinators, things like bees, things like mm. earthworms and springtails and all of these guys that are like really integral parts of the soil biodiversity network. And that, that causes problems eventually because, you know, it turns out they're important and they do a lot of things that we like to happen in farms. So neonicotinoids specifically, what, what is a neonicotinoid and what is its history? Yeah, so a neonicotinoid is basically, um, it's, <laughs> let me think of the right way to say this. It's, there are chemicals that, you know, they've been around since the 60s. Um, you were, they were really there to like target sort of early pests. Um, you have like corn maggot and, you know, a couple of different pests that have been, you know, caused a lot of crop loss over the years. Um, and part of the reason that they became so popular and ubiquitous is that they have a couple of interesting properties. They are really soluble in water. 
And so it's really easy that when you apply them, they're taken up by the plant. Uh, they're systemic, and so they, you know, they target a broad swath of organisms. You know, some of which are negative, some of which are beneficial. But really, um, when you apply them, that means that you know there's a good chance that you're not, you're going to knock out those pests that you're targeting. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, part of the problem is that they are so ubiquitous now. They don't, you know, break down very quickly in the soil, and so when you add them, they kind of like stick around for a little while. And because they're so ubiquitous, because um, we've been applying them in several different forms, um, they're starting to show up in places that we didn't apply them, which is a bit of a problem. So because they're water soluble, what happens is that they enter water bodies, they mm. enter streams, they enter rivers, they enter groundwaters. Uh, and, you know, insects and invertebrates are a key part of ecosystems, not just in the soil, but in streams, in like many different like ecosystems. And so neonics are targeting those as well. So we have, you know, a little bit of a problem where like aquatic ecosystems are actually quite, you know, have feel a lot of negative impacts from neonics that aren't applied to rivers, but they just wash in there because, right. you know, water flows off of agricultural fields. Sure. Um, and th those neonics will end up in pollinator populations, etc., because they end up in, la in the pollen of the plant as well. Mm. And do they go away or how long do these stay within our soils? Do they ever leave? They will eventually leave. Uh, one, uh, one of the rules that we usually say is that if you put something in soil, something will figure out how to eat it. And yeah. it just kind of depends on how long it sticks around. And sometimes when you have something, a chemical being broken down, uh, something worse can take its place. And so um, there's, you know, there's a couple different pieces of research, but you know, they can persist for a while. They'll stick to the organic matter molecules in the soil um, and, you know, sometimes be broken down over the course of like years. Uh, and so, it, you know, eventually something will break it down, but it just, it, you know, it takes a little while. Yeah, and, and it's kind of that rule of thumb that nature finds a way, right? Even though we yeah. introduce these things and we interject as humans, nature finds its way. So as uh, you we in, interject these pesticides, and they start to fray that food web that we talked about. How are these uh, insects, how is that biodiversity finding its way through this? And what are maybe some changes that you have seen in some ecosystems because of this introduction? Yeah, certainly. You know, uh, so this soil food web, it's amazingly complex and you have all of these organisms that, you know, some are grow like will grow really fast because they want to like take advantage of the food that's available and some organisms will prey on them so it's kind of like you know deer and wolves a good example is yellowstone the you remove the wolves i think from yellowstone mm -hmm. and the deer populations went out of control and those predators played a really important role in keeping um those popular those herbivore populations under control and so they play a really important role in like maintaining the balance of that food web right. and you know something similar happens with the interactions between neonics and soil biodiversity neonics sort of you know preferentially target soil predators we look at single cell predators like amoeba and protists and you have larger predators such as uh, nematodes you also have larger decomposers such as springtails and earthworms and these organisms play a really important role in soils being able to you know suppress and manage um, pest populations on their own we 
you know, we really like when soils are disease suppressive, when um, pest populations are kept under control, they don't grow big enough that they actually cause a problem to crops. And predators are really the ones that do a lot of that heavy lifting for us. They will eat the organisms before they like you know, kind of get out of control. So when you take those guys out with, you know, this broad spectrum insecticide, then you start to run into problems. You actually reduce the ability of the soil to suppress pests and diseases on its own over long periods of time. So, you know, there's been a couple really interesting pieces of work on how something like integrated pest management or sustainable pest management that really hopes to boost the capacity of the soil to reduce or control pests and disease populations on its own. Uh, things like neonics actually reduce the capability of the soil to do that. We're speaking with Daniel Rath. He's a scientist with the Natural Resources Defense Council. And we're talking about neonicotinoids, a specific type of uh, insecticide applied to soils Daniel, neonicotinoids are not the active ingredient, let's say, found in Roundup, correct? That's a different type of chemical. Yeah, Roundup is a different type of chemical. Right. That would be glyphosate. Yeah, but are neonicotinoids available, um, commonly available on a, on a commercial level? Can I get neonicotinoid type insecticides at uh, Home Depot or so? Yeah, you oh. know, a lot. A lot of the like sort of you know widely used insecticides will you know can contain neonicotinoids. Yeah. Um, you can get them. Yeah, they 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 are available in stores and you know as formulations in like a couple different products. And what crops uh, are are they applied to in general? G grasses or or is it uh, fruits, vegetable? Is there a typical crop that they're used on? Yeah, well, you know, they can be applied to like lawns, sometimes mm. they're applied to like places like golf courses. Mm. One of the major areas that neonicotinoids are applied to are seed coatings for things like corn, things like rice. And mm. so, um, you know, that's a little bit of an issue. Uh, in this case, they're often applied prophylactically, which means that they're applied before you see a problem. So in the hopes that, you know, kind of like insurance that you wouldn't actually have, you know, the pest populations will never quite get out of control. And so you'll have stuff like uh, corn seeds, stuff like wheat seeds, stuff like soy seeds will have this neonicotinoid uh, seed coatings on them. Um, and again, you're sort of applying these compounds before there's actually a problem. And so, you know, it can be, you you end up over applying in that case. Right. Um, yeah, in a very, uh, oh, like you say, prophylactic, prophylactic or, or preservative, um, very conservative way of applying it. Uh, but like you say, these these in, this family of insecticides are generalists, so they're going to um, address the the let's say the, the, the bacteria or so germs that are, they want to go after, but they're they're going to go they're going to affect healthy types of bacteria and germ that benefit the soil too. So they just get everybody. Yeah, pretty much. It's <laughs> okay. kind of like a it's a long way of saying <laughs> they just get everybody. <laughs> No, yeah, they just go in, they get everybody, you know, there's there's such interesting work that's been happening 
when a plant, when a seed grows, when a plant grows, it has these relationships that it builds with organisms in the soil that grow on its roots. And every plant has like a different, what we call root microbiome. Um, and these organisms that are on its root help it to uh, get nutrients from the soil. They they form like a little living sheath that can like reduce like the ability of toxic, you know, compounds, maybe like heavy metals or like different pests and diseases to make its way to the root. And the, you know, we are getting evidence that these seed coatings can have impacts on the root microbiome of these like young plants. Mm. So, you know, it's it's a lot of it is like this is a fairly new area of research, but honestly, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and I we expect obviously a lot of out of out of our soil too. Uh, we also expect carbon sequestration out of our soil. So how is the weakening of these mm. food webs affecting that? Yeah. Um, so that's one of the big functions that these food, that uh, this soil biodiversity provides. Um, soil carbon that sticks around for long periods of time uh, is soil, you know, carbon that's created from the soil biodiversity network, from the living network. And so it's, you know, you can't really point to one organism and say that, like, you are the one responsible for it. It's the interaction between all of these different types of organisms. And so when you disrupt that network, you can actually reduce the capacity of the soil to, you know, do these things. Um, we've seen evidence that, you know, when you apply neonics, you actually see reductions in the ability of soil to break down organic matter, to break down the leaves and the roots that are like, you know, the plant residues that are applied to the soil, um, like, you know, maybe left there after harvest. There's evidence that you reduce the ability of the soil to cycle nitrogen, which, mm. you know, is also a very important factor in soil carbon formation. And, you know, to be completely honest, it's so complex that we can't, you know, I couldn't take a piece of paper and diagram out how exactly that happens, mm -hmm. but we have just noted that it does happen. So are there governments um, applying rules and regulations now to manage and control the use of these neonicotinoids? Absolutely. So honestly, uh, Europe has been growing corn, soy, without neonicotinoids since about 2013. Uh, state governments in Quebec and Ontario have banned neonicotinoid seed coatings since 2019. Really and truly, you know, there have been several economic analysis, and it's not clear that neonicotinoid application, especially the sort of preemptive application that you see in seed coatings, actually has a positive, like, economic impact on farmers like it's not clear that this actually helps farmers bottom line hmm. that much right and so it's immediate it's very clear that it's possible to grow like have crops have great yields without these seed coatings um it's just you know uh, a really good example is that you think of these as insurance right it's hmm. you know the cost of applying them is maybe lower than the cost of what you might lose if you don't apply them but this type of insurance has hidden costs. There are all of these like ecosystem impacts. There are all of these negative impacts that could be occurring otherwise. Um, and honestly, you know, it's probably better to work on getting like, you know, reforming actual crop insurance than right. for farmers to 
um, kind of be finding their own way to like, how do I manage these pest populations? How do I ensure that I'm not going to run into a problem later? I I didn't think I heard you mention any uh, the U.S. or maybe the EPA uh, having yeah. some involvement in the management of neonicotinoids. Are they doing that? Uh, well, <laughs> they are. We are working on it. So right. um, the EPA, you know, has not been really paying much attention to sort of like insecticide application. There was a, they, you know, they just recently released a report where they looked at the negative impacts on neonicotinoids on like several endangered species in the U.S. Turns out that neonicotinoids have a negative impact on maybe like 200 endangered species. I would say about 11% of mm. the entire endangered species list in the U.S. like has pos like potential negative impacts from neonicotinoids. Um, and so we're sort of working on that. There's a um, law that has been passed by the New York State Legislature called the Bees and Birds Act. Mm. It's sort of waiting um, to be signed by the governor. Um, and there are a couple other states, such as California, that are like considering it. But honestly, the amount of movement on neonicotinoids in the U.S. has uh, maybe been a little bit behind what it is in the rest of the world. And is this a form of educating people so that they advocate for this? We did have um, some farmers on a couple months ago that talked about regenerative farming uh, as another way to look at how, uh, you know, not introducing these types of pesticides, but letting nature run its course. So how is this information getting out and how do people like Chris and I or our listeners push this uh, narrative forward that maybe we don't need those neonics in our soil. You know, what you just said, education mm -hmm. is a major part of it. I think that there's, there's kind of two parts. There's um, education of a general public. So people being aware that, hey, these neonicotinoids have a negative impact and maybe, you know, they don't, we don't need to be applying them or you could, you know, to our lawns, to our, again, golf courses, because they will end up having knock-on effects later. Um, the other part is that it's really important to make sort of like, I think, technical assistance available to farmers. And so, you know, the U.S. Extension Agency has been like massively underfunded for like, you know, the last couple of decades, but they are an incredible source of information for things like regenerative agriculture, like integrated pest management, like you said, for these strategies that like, basically empower the soil in order to uh, carry out all these things we wanted to you know, empower the soil to be healthy, empower the soil as a partner, the silent partner in many cases in many farms that supports crops and um, reduces pest populations. So well, uh, raising, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it, just, just a couple more minutes. And I just want to highlight the fact that we've spent 20 minutes talking about uh, neonicotinoids that's just one type of insecticide that's applied to the soil. We have to remember that in addition to insecticides, there's herbicides that are applied to soil, like glyphosates, Roundup, to control weeds. There's fungicides that are specifically designed to control fungal growth on plants. There's rodenticides that might be applied to control pests. 
There's even um, so, uh, a family of uh, chemicals called piscicides that are used to, say, to control nuisance fish. I knew all these things because I have a friend who's in the golf industry back in Florida who at a moment of, uh, of uh, ill-advised openness told them that these are the chemicals they have in their storage shed that are applied to golf courses, lots of golf courses around the country. Um, and so there's... It's not just neonics that you know we concern ourselves, although we should. But there, there's there's a whole soup, a whole broth of of chemicals that are applied to our plants and soils these days, and we don't even understand the synergetic synergetic effects of having all those chemicals being applied to soils and to plants and et cetera. So, I. I yeah, I, honestly, I could not have said it better myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's you. You're absolutely right. And you know, it's I. I used to farm right okay. when um before, and it, farming is really hard. I, and I, there's sure. like all of these issues that you run into, like trying to keep pests and like populations under control. And sometimes these pesticides are like the only option. So when you think about systems like integrated pest management, the goal is not like outright banning uh, you know a good example is a burden bezac it's not like outright mm -hmm. banning of neonicotinoids it's reducing it as wasteful application as much as possible targeting seed coatings that are sort of this like prophylactic application targeting sort of like uh, application in lawns and sort of like non-agricultural settings to reduce the amount that enters the environment and Really, when you think about integrated pest management, it's about, you know, this is a last resort. It should be a last resort. There should, you know, you should try to exhaust all of these other options before, you know, sort of relying on pesticides and um, all of these agrochemicals to, like, make sure it, you know, it ends up under control. But again, it's like, it's real hard to do yeah. all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and, and look, it's also real hard to grow crops. Uh, in the absence of these of these chemicals, who provide you know beneficial uh, moments to our, to the soil and, and healthy soil and plants, etc., it's the like you say the, the say the mismanagement or overuse of it or over reliance of these chemicals uh, to kind of win the day for us and help us grow even more crops because there's a there's a downside to all these uh, chemicals. You know, just read Silent Spring. Uh, you yep. know, that book's only 60 years old, but it's still, <laughs> it's still uh, topical today. It m makes sense even today. Um, and, you know, I, I do want to uh, maybe end on a positive note. We have a couple more <laughs> minutes left. As we do look forward, Dan, um, what are you most hopeful for in terms of soil health and biodiversity? And what good things that are you seeing out there that are happening? You know, I, I think that that's a really good point is that very often you only hear about the gloom and the doom. But honestly, what there are some amazing things happening sort of across the U.S. right now. I think uh, soil biodiversity, people are beginning to realize that it's important, that we need to measure it. Um, for example, the European Union has kind of been on this track for several years. But uh, California just reached released a report 
um, on how we measure soil biodiversity in California agricultural systems because they're really viewing this as a way to conserve biodiversity in agriculture. You know, landowners and soils and farms can be like a massive part of the climate change solution, can be a massive part of the solution to the biodiversity and human health crises. Uh, there are lots of concepts out there, you know, food is medicine. Um, agroecosystems, all of these things are, you know, ways that we are learning that the systems that we have can be changed, you know, and in many cases, the things that we can do on farms that, you know, help the environment are not radical departures from the way we farm. They're sort of like knowledge and expertise and techniques that have been around for generations, you know, preserved in sort of like traditional ecological knowledge preserved in the experiences of farmers that have been working on particular plots of lands for years. This idea of having a relationship with your soil, of having, you know, a long-term sustainability, of having, you know, generational, uh, being able to pass things down through generations. And so there's like a lot of attention and a lot of research, a lot of work that has been going into making our soils and our farms part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And it's honestly really inspiring. I work with folks every day that I'm just sort of excited to get up and be like, oh yeah, let's think about this. This mm. is great. Mm -hmm. so. All right, Daniel Rath, scientist with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Daniel, uh, website people can go to to learn more about the NRDC and say the, the writings uh, uh, that you do, the work that you do. Absolutely. Uh, the NRDC, uh, sorry, www.nrdc.org. Uh, you can go just, you know, type my name, Daniel Rath, into the search bar there. You'll get a lot of other great information. As, you know, the pollinators team um, work has been working on neonics for quite a while. We have, uh, we work on many different issues, including soils, food waste, etc. you name it. So yeah, to go ahead and take a look. There's a lot of good information on there. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you. We appreciate all your input and have a great day. It has been a blast. Thank you so much. All right, we got just a couple minutes, uh, a minute or so before we have to wrap up. I just want to quickly note this item I, I got um, out of the paper. Wind turbines and solar panels generated 22% of the European Union's electricity last year, up from less than 1% just two decades ago. That is progress. Now here in the U.S., 15% uh, of electricity comes from wind and solar um, last year, as of last year, which is above the global average, less than the European Union, but again, up from virtually zero just uh, two decades, 20 years ago. So lots of progress going on and continued progress with respect to electricity that's being generated by uh, commercial and private wind and solar uh, energy sources. So that's good news. The, the, the challenge that since 2000, the world's electricity generation has increased 80%. So we're inc increasing our renewables, but the demand for electricity continues to increase as our population increases, et cetera, et cetera. It's an ongoing challenge. We got to wrap up. Yes, we do have to wrap up. But I like that uh, little good news at the end there, Chris. Thanks for that. You. you can email us your thoughts, comments, and ideas for topics and stories you'd like us to cover at This Green Earth, all one word, at kpcw.org.
O-R-G. And the good news is the interviews for this show are going to be posted on KPCW. Uh, they'll be on our website later, so you can either re-listen or if you're just tuning in now and you missed it, you're going to want to do that. KPCW.org is the place to go.